0: Well, good morning. It has been such a joy for me to be here these past couple Sundays here at Hawaii Kai Church. Uh, Just yesterday, my children were asking me, what are we going to bring home uh, when we head back home to California to remember our trip out to Oahu? And I told them, or maybe I said this to myself, I said, it would be the hospitality of Hawaii Kai Church. It would be the warm welcome that you have given me and my family, and so very thankful for you and for all of you who have greeted us and extended a warm welcome to us. Now this morning we are going to be in the book of Exodus, and we're going to continue on to the next chapter from last Sunday. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, and we are going to look through the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read from God's Word, Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it by two men in pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. "'Because,' she said, "'I drew him out of the water.'" And may God bless the reading of his word. Uh, You might have heard the phrase that big doors swing on small hinges. And the idea there is that big events, major events in history, sometimes occur on the smallest of decisions. Uh, just this past year, it's been the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and so I took time to read an oral history of 9-11. And there are a couple stories that stood out to me. One of them is about how two men came running to the gate of Washington Dulles International Airport in Virginia, and these passengers relate, But the uh, ticket agents saw them coming and running, and they, so they held the gate open for them and said, come on, come on in, come on in and they made it onto the plane in, aboard American Airlines Flight 77. Unbeknownst to these ticket agents, these men would hijack the plane and cause it to crash into the Pentagon nearly an hour later, killing 125 people. At the same time on that morning, on 9-11, Jeremy Glick boarded United Flight 93. He was planning on flying actually on that Monday, but delayed his flight for a couple of reasons and then ended up flying out on Tuesday. And so he caught Flight 93, which was hijacked when he and some other passengers decided that they were going to take back the plane. Jeremy Glick is six feet, or he was six feet, 220 pounds, national judo champion. And he took action. And even though the plane crashed into a field, it didn't reach its intended target, which could have been the US Capitol and perhaps saved hundreds of lives. And so you see that one makes the plane and kills hundreds in an act of terrorism, and one makes the plane and saves hundreds in an act of heroism. The biggest events sometimes turn on the smallest hinges, and I'm sure there are all sorts of what-if scenarios in your life What if I made a decision here, or made a decision there, or did something different? Well, that is what we see this morning in the book of Exodus. Exodus, if you know the book, is a book written to the second generation. It is written to a generation of Israelites that have come out of Exodus already, and they're in the wilderness, and they're reading this story for the first time because they have forgotten their past, and Moses wants to remind this generation that saw their fathers and mothers, their grumbling fathers and mothers perish in the wilderness, and wants to remind them about the faithfulness of God. And also, how He can, God can, in surprising and small ways, use all sorts of people to carry out His mission, His plan of salvation. That's what we see here in our passage this morning. We have... Three women, three women of different ages, different ethnicities, and different socioeconomic backgrounds, all of them being used to deliver God's people in this great plan of deliverance, and yet none of them had the faintest idea of the parts that they were playing. But history can turn on the smallest hinges. Let's take a look at these three women. First, we see in verses 1 through 4, a faithful mother. That's what we see here in these opening verses, a faithful mother. When we last left off Exodus, it was desperate times for the people of Israel, worried about the rising birth rates. They uh, basically, Pharaoh decided that he was going to exterminate uh, these Israelites. He would oppress them. And yet, the more he oppressed them, the more they continued to multiply. And so he decided that he was going to have a different plan. He, he takes these midwives, Sifra and Pua, and says, go take care of these baby boys. But of course, his plan backfired again. And having failed at slavery, having failed at infanticide, he now turns to complete genocide because at the end of chapter 1, he says, All of Egypt, you have a decree. You are allowed now to go ahead and kill any baby boys that you find. No longer is it being done in secret. He deputizes the Egyptian people to be vigilante executioners. And yet in these desperate times, a young Hebrew couple decides to still get married. We're told in verse 1 that... Both father and mother come from the tribe of Levi. And we learn later in in Exodus 6 that the name of father and mother is Amram and Jochebed. And these two, they have their son Moses. Now, Amram and Jochebed have at least two other children that we know of, Miriam, who we see in this story, and also Aaron, who you'll meet later in Exodus. But the decree of Pharaoh has gone out, and it is death to all baby boys. And so you can imagine that scene when the midwife comes, Jochebed's in labor and, and pushing and pushing, and mom and dad are kind of holding their breath as they wait for this baby boy to be delivered, waiting for the midwife to say whether it's a boy or girl, and all the pressure is there upon them. And then the baby comes, and the midwife says to the parents, it's a boy. In what should have been a moment of celebration and joy, a real kind of gender reveal party, becomes a moment of dread, because at that moment they needed to make a decision. They needed they didn't make a decision what they were what they were going to do. Are they going to comply with Pharaoh's order, or do what's right? But one look at the baby boy and they knew what they needed to do. It says here in verse two that he was a fine child. Now that doesn't mean that Moses was extraordinarily handsome. It means that they knew he was going to live. It doesn't mean Moses was born with a halo on top and they somehow knew, but they did know this, that this was a child that God had entrusted to them and they would not sacrifice him on the altar of convenience. So we are told they hide the baby for three months. But at some point, she can't hide him anymore. Maybe Moses is crying more. Maybe the persecution is getting more dire in the land. Maybe Pharaoh's henchmen are going house to house searching for these baby boys. Whatever the reason, she creates a basket for him, treats it with bitumen and tar to make it river worthy and puts puts the baby in the bank of the Nile. Now, some of you might be picturing here some wicker basket from all those movies and cartoons or animations that you've seen about Moses and, and, uh, and him floating down the Nile. But the term here for basket is an interesting one. It's found only 28 times in the Old Testament, twice here, and 26 times in Genesis, Genesis 6 through 9. And there, it is the story of Noah and the ark. It's that word ark that is being used here. Just as Noah made an ark of gopher wood and covered it with pitch, here we see a basket of bulrushes covered with pitch. I think this is intentional. I think it's picking up the theme of deliverance and salvation. Just as God delivered up Noah from the waters of death through an ark, so too he's gonna deliver up Moses. So Jochebed, in this act of creative disobedience, obeys Pharaoh's law to the letter. Pharaoh's law says, find a baby boy, throw him in the river. And she has a baby boy, and she puts him in the river, but encased in an ark. Now, I hope you don't picture uh, Moses' mother here wringing her hands as if she doesn't know what to do, as if she's a tangle of nerves crying profusely you wondering what to do and i'm sure there were tears but here's a woman of remarkable courage a woman who responds in faith rather than in fear uh, if you look in the book of hebrews hebrews 11:23 gives us a comment about what's happening here and says by faith By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. They were the ones with faith because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is how we are to interpret the actions of Moses' parents. By faith in God's promises, by faith that God's word was worthy to be obeyed, she disobeys Pharaoh. So she is not afraid of Pharaoh's order. She is not afraid of what's going to happen to her body. She's afraid of what she's what's going to happen to her soul. So mother, so Moses' mother was certainly planning all of this. I think she thought this through because pitch and bitumen just don't show up on riverbanks. Perhaps she, in her mind, she thought there's a possibility here that. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter is going to receive this child and think it is a gift from the river god of the Nile. And perhaps she had observed Pharaoh's daughter routinely coming to this part of the Nile to to take her bath and observed her schedule and timing. Maybe that's all part of her plan. We don't know, but we do know that she is a woman who fears the Lord and she is not afraid to put her baby up for adoption. Now it's hard for us to comprehend what this mother went through. It's hard to think through. We kind of understand generally where the story's gonna go. But how hard it is for parents sometimes to give up their children, isn't it? We have this thing in the Bay Area where I'm from. There's a term that they have for parents called helicopter parents. Helicopter parents are those ones that are always hovering always over their children. There are real examples of parents moving with their children to where they are at university to make sure that everything's gonna be okay for their children. But look at Jochebed with courage and initiative. She trusts in God. She took the avenues that are provided for her and gives her child to the care of God. A whole Mother's Day sermon could be preached on the faith of Jochebed and how she is in a long line of faithful women who let their children go. Think of Hannah, who gave up her son Samuel to be raised in the tabernacle to be a sort of deliverer for the people of Israel. Or we can think of those two women before Solomon's court fighting over which baby belongs to them, And one of them says, no, give it to that woman because I would rather have this child live than to win the custody battle. Or even think of more poignantly, Mary who gives up her son and a sword would pierce her soul as she beheld Jesus at the crucifixion. One pastor writes, sometimes the bravest thing a mom can ever do is to let go of the child that belongs to God even more than it belongs to her. So we've seen this faithful mother, and second, we also see a faithful child. Uh, We are introduced to Moses' older sister in verse 4, and most likely this is Miriam that we meet later on in Exodus, and scholars usually put her around the age between 6 and 15, because she's not quite old enough to be expected to be working in the fields. And yet she's old enough to carry on a conversation with Pharaoh's daughter. She's old enough to be given the responsibility to watch over Moses on the riverbank. And boy, does she have an adventure in babysitting. When Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses, Miriam actually takes action, doesn't she? She talks to Pharaoh's daughter, this little slave girl. She says in verse 7, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And, And Pharaoh's daughter responds, yes, go ahead. And Jacobet is able to get a job essentially nursing her own child. Notice the resolve of this young girl, Miriam, to speak up and say something. And just this one question from her moved along God's history of redemption. It ensured that Moses would be raised early on by her own mother, by his own mother. It also ensured that Moses would know that he was a Hebrew. Now, there are some children in this room this morning, and I am so glad that you're here. You are not invisible to this church. But do you see how God can use even a young child? It doesn't matter if you are six years old or you are 16 years old. You can do something for the Lord. Sometimes you might think, what can I do for God? I'm just a child. You know, I'm a kid. I'm just going to do my best to get good grades. I'm going to do my best to you know, play some sports, have some friends, play some video games, and just not get into too much trouble with my parents. But do you see what Miriam does? She speaks up in an environment that seems to oppose everything she believes because the law of the land was that this baby boy was supposed to be dead. At least that's what all the uh, the adults were saying. That's what all the people in power were saying. So Miriam knew that wasn't right, and she wouldn't go with the flow, so she knew that this would not please the Lord, and so she asked us this one simple question. Do you need help finding a a nurse for this baby? Because I know a real good one. And just that little decision to trust the Lord to do what was right put Miriam in the path of the much larger plan of God. She plays a part in delivering the deliverer. And third, we see in this story a compassionate princess we see a compassionate princess. In verses 5 and 6, we're told of the daughter of Pharaoh. She comes down to bathe at the river, and perhaps she hears some of the crying inside the basket, but she goes ahead and calls one of her servants to go and retrieve it, to retrieve this ark among the reeds. Now, we are so familiar with this story, but imagine that you are reading it for the first time When you are told the daughter of Pharaoh finds the basket, you are likely to be on the edge of your seat because you're probably thinking this is the daughter of a genocidal maniac and she's found the baby and she's going to pick up the baby, she's going to show it to daddy and then it's game over for this baby. So when she takes that basket, opens it up, with a collective sigh, we, we read, she took pity on him. The word here could be translated, had compassion. She does not simply just feel a tinge of sorrow and then gets on with her bathing. No, she too takes action. She gets a nurse for him among the Hebrews. She provides materially for Moses' family. And at great cost and risk and defiance, she adopts this child as her own. She takes them into the royal house where Acts tells us that Moses would be taught all these things in the courts of the Egyptians. This is a remarkable turn of events. It would be as if Adolf Hitler's daughter was hiding a Jew in her cellar. This is not daddy's little girl. She will not participate in his cold blooded population control program. Rather, she is a tender-hearted woman with a maternal heart. She even gives him this remarkable name, Moses. Why is it remarkable, you say? Because Moses in Egyptian means son. And at the same time, in Hebrew, means drawn out from the water. This princess is consciously honoring the Hebrew origins of her son. And at the same time, saying, giving, her this Egyptian, giving him this Egyptian name, saying... I'm adopting you. Here is a Gentile who does not know the one true God and yet exhibits remarkable compassion. It is not without reason that a commentator describes the scene not as the parable of the good Samaritan, but the parable of the good Egyptian. What a beautiful picture of God's common grace and his ability to use anybody to carry out his plan. Thank God that people who don't know God can still be decent and generous and merciful. Again, in reading the accounts of those who survived 9-11, my heart can't go out but to be welling up in thankfulness for the firefighters that ran into the towers even while it was burning to save people and to ultimately lose their lives or the numerous boats in the vicinity of, that evacuated the island of Manhattan, or the office workers who were going down the stairs and carried their coworkers with them to safety. We should give thanks for every courageous compassion performed by those outside the covenant community, because we are often recipients of such compassion. Whether neighbor or nurse, we should thank God for his gifts to us through them. Now, many of us are familiar with the story of Moses' birth, and it is really a remarkable story, isn't it? But have you noticed, I wonder if you've noticed, that in these opening chapters of Exodus, from last week to this week, Exodus is really the story of five remarkable women. Shifra, Pua, Jacobed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, And some of you might say, well, the Bible is full of stories about boys, not girls. And I would say that that's true. But a lot of the stories about the men in the Bible are about really, really bad men, aren't they? I mean, try to count on your hand the number of bad women in the Bible, and you probably won't be able to come up with many. You'll probably start thinking, okay, there's Jezebel, okay, there's maybe Delilah, there's maybe Potiphar's wife, There's maybe Athaliah, the the wife, uh, the the daughter of Ahab. Ahab. But think about all the remarkable women who show up in the Bible Sarah, Rebecca, Ruth, Abigail, Mary, uh, Eunice, Priscilla. And I met some women in this church who have their hands full as mothers. Maybe some of you literally having your hands full right now. And they are working and caring for their children, caring for their families. And it may seem like as mothers that making a difference for God was something maybe I did in the past, maybe when I was in college or post-college for those couple of years, or maybe it's something way ahead in the future, 20 years from now, when all my children are all grown up and you're just trying to get through the day. Well, let me encourage you to see that the great unfolding story of God's redemption culminating in the cross of Christ is being, made, being pushed forward, moving forward by women, specifically by women doing one thing, taking up the noble role of caring for children. There are women here who are going to do so many other things with their lives besides taking care of children. Some of you don't have children. Uh, Some of you who have children who have all grown up and and left. Uh, Some of you aren't married. Some of you are married and don't have children yet. There are all sorts of things women can do in the service of God. But isn't it striking that the first chapter and a half of Exodus moves forward on women simply trying to care for children? In his book, Men and Women in the Church, Kevin DeYoung writes, Shifra, Pua, Jacobed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter. God used them in mighty ways, in ways that they couldn't fully understand at the time, all by simply loving children and protecting their little lives. And notice that only one of these women was the birth mother, of the child at the center of the story. Women who for any number of reasons do not bear children of their own can still be mothers in Israel. He continues, I'm not suggesting that working with children is all that women can or should do in life or in the church, but we should recognize the Old Testament pattern and celebrate that caring for children will be one of the main things and one of the most amazing things many women will do with their lives. So mothers, your labors are not in vain. You do not see the end from the beginning. Here we see God's plan to save an entire nation turning on the hinge of a few faithful women who love children that God has put in their midst. Uh, Some of us might feel that in this world, which undervalues children in a culture of of death, and you might wonder, what can we do about it? What can we do about it? I'm insignificant. I can't change the laws of the land. I'm unknown. I'm small. I'm insignificant. But church, we can take up the mantle of fostering. We can take up the mantle of adoption, supporting it. I know some of you here this morning have adopted. We can be aunties and uncles serving in children's ministry and Awana and youth. We can invest God's word into the hearts of these young ones. We can do what we can to be faithful, no matter what age or background or upbringing we have. Now Moses was delivered by five women that he might be deliverer for an entire nation. But we can't leave our story there this morning because all of this was orchestrated not only by a faithful mother and a faithful child, but ultimately by a faithful God. Ultimately, God is the real deliverer of of his people, isn't it? God holds center stage through these early chapters even though he is never named in these early chapters of Exodus. I wonder if you've ever noticed that about the opening Uh, Chapters of Exodus, in this opening of Exodus, there's this hiddenness of God through it all, but it only serves to heighten our sense of His power. We might not think God is acting because He doesn't act in some spectacular fashion, but He works providentially through the normal actions of people in the normal order of life. Did you notice that? I mean, I don't know how you read it. I I didn't know if you just thought, oh, you know, this man and this woman, they happen to be married and they happen to be Levites, and then Jochebed happens to conceive a son. And of all the possible places that this little ark, that this little that this little basket could have gone, it just happened to drift near Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter happened to hear it and notice the, the basket. She happens to take pity on the child, and she happens to take Miriam's suggestion of getting a nurse. Moses happens to be raised by her his very own mother, and he happens to be raised in the Egyptian courts. Is this how you read the story of Moses? As happenstances, lucky coincidences? Apart from believing that God actively and sovereignly rules over our world, these verses become a mere celebration of Jochebed and her creativity, of Miriam and her, her resourcefulness, of Pharaoh's daughter and her, and her compassion. But if you're a Christian, this is not how you should read it. I assure you that is not why it is written. The days of Moses' birth should have been the days of his death. The river that should have consumed him delivered him into the courts of Egypt. He was born a slave and raised a prince. And the way this whole story is constructed is about the reversal of evil designs and the providence of God to accomplish his plan of salvation through all sorts of ordinary means, simple, ordinary means. From beginning to end, salvation belongs to God. And isn't it interesting even that you never see the people of Israel crying out in these early chapters, not until you reach the end of nearly chapter two. So what we learn is that even before Israel cries out for help, cries out for mercy and deliverance, God was already at work. He was preparing a deliverer even before they asked in his quiet and hidden providence. And even while the world, while this world, in this hardness of heart, didn't ask for a deliverer, God in his quiet and hidden providence orchestrated the birth of a greater deliverer. You see, Moses was a savior, but he was not the savior. Long after the exodus, the Israelites were waiting for another savior to be born, and in the quiet and hidden providence of God, this prophet would be also born in humble circumstances. This prophet would also appear after nearly 400 years of silence from God. He too would be born under a death sentence, under the oppressive rule of of this oppressive king who wanted baby boys dead. He too would come out from Egypt. He too would be given a name to match his destiny. They called him Moses, because he would draw a whole nation through the water, and they called him Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus is the greater prophet. He would lead a greater deliverance. He would leave his people out to a greater captivity. And in accordance with God's perfect plan, He laid down his life. This child would live a perfect life and lay down his life in an atoning death upon the cross, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself would be the Passover lamb by which many will be saved. It is on this hinge of history that hangs eternity and heaven and hell. So if there are any of you here this morning, this day, and you do not know Jesus Christ. If there are any of you here this morning and you've never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, look to him today. Don't look from this passage and simply see moms and children and Moses, but see so much more. See what all of those things are pointing to. Jesus is the Savior from God's wrath wrath, and Jesus is the Savior from all your enslavements. Look to Jesus and be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, what an enjoyable time we've had together in your word. And as we have looked into your word over these past two Sundays in Exodus, we pray that your word would be looking into our hearts and uncovering our idols, revealing where we need to grow in faith, encouraging us where we need to be encouraged, spurring us on to love and good deeds. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful men and women, boys and girls. And given the opportunity, we pray that we would act in faith these simple actions perhaps on which great hinges, these great doors will swing in Your redemptive plan and for Your glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.